Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds and those who don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel podcast, where crafting content is like forging Excalibur. Each piece, a weapon of influence, cutting through the noise. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I help B2B SaaS founders like you grow from traction to scale. Here, growth is more than just numbers. It's about crafting a future-proof company, premium valuation, and leaders who build businesses of significance while living epic, adventurous lives. I bet you've heard a thousand times that content is king, right? And that was probably true once. With all the recycled, AI-generated nonsense cluttering the world, that's a little bit tougher these days. Way back in the first episode of the Sassfield podcast, Neil Gordon added a letter to that whole thing of content is king. Actually changed a letter, changed that N to an X. And he said context is king. And I think that's still true because context really matters in that content. And really great and unique content is still awesome. Just not the the recycled stuff. Another lame AI post written by AI about AI, about how to use AI to make money with AI. Everyone I know does appreciate great, insightful content, though, and I, and I try to bring that here. Even today, with the right mix of elements, a simple post can go viral, blow up, and turn into a digital sensation. But here's the kicker. Going viral isn't just about luck. And it can't be manufactured on demand with a formula. It's not just science. Although there's probably an AI written course out there that tells you how. Seriously, though, it is a blend of science, art, and a dash of je ne sais quoi. Yeah, that's something special. Snoop might call it the, the shiznizzle. I don't know what it is, but it's just something about that and just blows up and, and goes crazy. It's hard to, to figure out exactly what that is. But what we really want to do is craft content that not only grabs eyeballs, but also grips hearts and minds and leads to real measurable action. An app I use all the time does this really well, and that's Grammarly. Do you use it also? Lots and lots of people are doing it. It's, it's fantastic. But it's not just about correcting your grammar. They've mastered the art of engaging content also. By providing value through tips, humor, relatable examples, they've turned a tool into a conversation starter, driving both brand awareness and user growth. It's content that educates, entertains, and yes, converts. And most of us want our content to do that same kind of thing. So if we could bottle this viral formula for our own content, here's what that concoction might look like. First, we want to make sure that we know our audience inside and out. And this is where the science does come in. Dive deep into your audience's demographics, interests, pain points. And what are they trying to do? What do they want to know? What are they trying to solve? And of course, the goal is to create content that resonates so strongly with them that they can't help but engage and share. It's like crafting a message that speaks directly to their soul. And today's guest, pretty cool, is going to tell us how to develop that soul-level content. Really good stuff. Second is when to unleash your creativity, Grammarly. And that is the art, finding a unique angle. Even better, a unique angle that tells a story. Experiment with format, storytelling, visuals. Be bold, authentic. 
maybe a little controversial, stir something up, but not in a negative way. I want to encourage that. But most importantly, be memorable. Whether it's a gripping video, an insightful infographic, or a witty tweet, make sure, maybe I should say a witty X <laughs> tweet, I don't know. Uh, but be sure it stands out in this endless sea of content. And it's just getting to be more and more of that as well. So we have to do more to stand out. And number three is when to optimize for engagement and decide what it is you want this piece of content to do. Is it brand awareness? Is it to educate? Is it to entertain? Is it to convert? Is it to raise your authority in some way? Is it to, to show expertise? There's lots of different ways to do that, but optimize for that type of engagement. And this is where you fine tune that masterpiece. Use analytics to understand what works and what doesn't. And again, there's a little bit of science in here, a little bit of art, but maybe this is the je ne sais quoi, right? Encourage interaction by asking questions, running polls, hosting challenges. Some things work really well with some audiences and some that work really well with some audiences, you try them in a different audience and it falls completely flat. I've tried a bunch of things like that. And it, something that works in one place just doesn't work in another, which is, is really interesting to me. But always include a clear call to action. Let the audience know what it is that you want them to do. What should they do next? How do they engage? What do they do? How do they interact? And it's not just about grabbing eyeballs. It's about adding value, establishing authority, and ultimately driving results. Now, the quest to create awesome, thought-provoking content. Remember, it's not just about numbers. It's not just science. It's about creating a connection that inspires action. Unleash creativity, dive into data, and craft content that captivates and converts. So let's unleash that content that doesn't just make a splash, but creates a wave of impact. Our founder on Tuesday was Mike Adams, founder and executive chairman of Grain.com, which is my new favorite meeting and note-taking app. Way better than two others I've used. I've talked about that on the show. Exceptional. Mike and I talked about building smart, focusing on what you love, finding freedom and profit by letting go. That's counterintuitive. And making AI work for you. And our expert guest last week was Kenneth Burke, VP of Marketing for Text Request, who's fueled growth for startups to billion-dollar enterprises, and he shared his secrets on mastering SaaS marketing and content creation. If you missed either of those episodes, go back and give them a listen. My guest today changed the way I think, which is one of my favorite kind of guests, and I bet she will change the way you think too. My guest today is Becky Lawler, the brain behind Redpoint Content. Becky turbocharges B2B tech brands with thought leadership content that skyrockets market presence and brand recognition. With a client roster that includes giants like Adobe, IBM, Zapier, her strategies have tripled leads, expanded media coverage, and dramatically increased engagement from her clients. All things I want to do. How about you? Welcome someone whose content is always on point, Becky Lawler. Hey, Becky, welcome to SAS Fuel. Hey, Jeff, it's nice to be here. Well, you spent over a decade helping B2B tech brands. What would you say is the key to creating thought leading content that elevates a brand's market presence? I think the key is originality. If you want to be a thought leader, you got to come with something original to the conversation. There's a couple of different ways you can get there, um, which I think is probably what we'll talk about, but originality would be my term. 
I like that. And so tell me a little bit about Redpoint content. How did you come up with the idea? How did you land in, in doing this and helping B2B tech? Brands? Yeah, so I started out as a freelancer and I just landed in B2B tech because the first agency that kind of hired me way back when happened to be in the tech space. And I actually found that I really enjoyed it. And so I just stayed in there. And then probably about five or six years ago, I shifted into wanting to not just write content, but to do primary or original research um, as part of that development. I, I've always been in the thought leadership and especially in long form, in-depth content. Um, that's just what I enjoy doing and what I'm really good at. But I wanted to start to be able to bring what I found as a writer is like when I'm writing for a bunch of different brands, often it's really challenging if they're just telling you to go out and use third-party research to find an interesting story or angle that doesn't sound like the guy next door, so to speak. And so that really, when I discovered brands doing primary research and then I was writing those reports, it just really lit me up. And I felt like if I'm this engaged by the content, I think the audiences are also this engaged by the content. And I really want to be able to do more of this. And so that's what led me to founding Redpoint and getting trained in how I could really do the full primary research for brands with my focus is there's a bunch of different ways. There's market research and there's audience research and price research. There's a bunch of different research, but my focus is really on doing research in order to drive your content marketing program. Yeah, and that kind of leads back to the, the answer to the first question. That was originality. Right. And is that where you've seen content really take off? It's not just making content because we all hear that all the time, but it's making original content and using primary research to yeah. do that. And, you know, the other way to do primary research that it would be like really low budget and easy and everybody should be doing is interviews, right? That's just where you're you should be tapping your internal um, subject matter experts. You should be trying to interview thought leaders in the industry, your customers, and you should be weaving all of that into your content as that's like what I consider the low hanging fruit. Uh, it doesn't cost anything except a little bit more time and effort, but your content right there will be such a higher level. And that's, you need to tap into your thought leaders in your organization's thinking and then bring that to the content. But I do see a lot of times that companies want to shortcut that. And they just want to pick a topic and get a piece on it and, and not have to ask somebody for their time. But you need that originality. And the only way to get that is either through somebody's thinking and their experience or this other way, which is also really interesting, is through primary research where you're going out and you're typically like you're surveying your target audience. You want to be able to help them benchmark. You want to um, give them data points that maybe support your messaging and your product. You want to have data around what you're trying to say that you have done the research for and that it's nobody else is saying in the market. So like busting myths is another great way. If you can do research and kind of bust some myths in your industry, all of those are ways to really pique interest and engagement and show that you're um, authority and a thought leader in the space. I like that. And that's interesting. You say tap the experts right around you. So we don't have to go out and get McKinsey and HBR and Gartner and then those guys to do the research or, or to buy their research. No, there is a time and a place for where you would want to tap like a Gartner, but it is not like something. I think when you're talking about your content marketing program, I think there's a lot of ways to do this. Like I said, the inner, just interviewing your own internal thought leaders is free. It just takes time sure. and effort. 
but even doing your own branded research is going to be a lot less expensive. And I think actually can really elevate your own authority. It shows that you're investing in your industry, that you are going out and doing research mm. for your whole industry. And you're owning that research in a way that elevates you. If you think about, I like to use Salesforce as an example. Everybody knows like Salesforce does a state of marketing report every single year. Everybody looks right. for that to come out. And that is part of, in my opinion, why they have authority <laughs> in their industry is because they do this research and they are the ones that everybody looks to. So in my mind, if you're the brand, do I want to invest with a consultancy and then they have that influence and thought leadership and I've just partnered on something that I'm passing around? Or do I want to own the research and really show that my brand is investing in the industry and elevate my authority in that industry that way? If it's me, I pick the brand-owned research route. But like I said, it depends on specifically what your goals are. But a lot of times, if your goals are just around content marketing and engagement and PR and um, lead generation, I think brand-owned research will probably deliver a stronger return on investment. That's really interesting. And just thinking about that, it's a great example of, of thought leadership. So they do that and people look forward to it. And what's interesting is people will start to reference that in, in other research and write articles about that research and, and that kind of thing. Is that kind of what you want to do yeah. as a company is you do the research and you put it out there and you use it for more than just that? Yeah. So there's so much leverage you can get from doing research. And I just want to give you an example. One of my clients, just since we were talking about Gartner, one of my clients actually had their research cited by Gartner, which there you go. You know, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so then you have elevated yourself in the industry because nobody was doing that specific research. Not even Gartner had that data. So in one of their blogs, they cited this research re report that we had done. I think that right there shows that you can, that's like a back channel to getting your Gartner <laughs> citation. But yes. yeah, so in general, I think there's so much you can get from it, starting with a content strategy, understanding your target audience. You've just gone out and surveyed them. Now you understand what their pain points are, their challenges, what's relevant to them. So now you can think about what content to create. Like you can really establish a content strategy for a year based on the research you've done. You also can do so much spin-off content, social media, webinars, infographics, blogs. You can use it for an ABM program because if you've done, if you surveyed a bunch of different industries or roles, now you can slice that data and do reports and articles that are really specific towards different subsets that you surveyed. So there's just so many ways to recycle it. And in fact, even like events and trade shows and speaking, a lot of my clients have gotten a lot of value out of their thought leaders and their um, people they want to elevate in the organization being able to get speaking engagements because they have in research to present, which actually is really appealing when um, people are trying to choose speakers for their their events. Yeah, that's really interesting because then they can go and they can actually present your research as part of their speaking engagement. Yeah. And I had, again, I had another client who they actually had tried to get a speaking engagement at this. I don't know what the event was, but something they told me they'd tried for a couple of years and had been turned down to speak. It was prestigious in their industry. Once we did the research, they applied again. Not only did they get a speaking spot, they actually got a prime speaking engagement versus just a off one of the session ones. I think they got like a main stage 
speaking engagement. So it was pretty amazing how much difference it made for them in getting that visibility. So if we're doing our own research, how do we put something together? How do we even do that? You know, what, yeah. what have you seen that has worked or maybe some things that haven't? I think you need to start with a strategy. What I've seen that doesn't work is where people just like, oh, you get a bunch of cooks in the kitchen, so to speak, and everybody wants, somebody wants to know this from product marketing. Somebody from marketing wants to know this. So you, people think they can just whip together a survey and ask the questions, but then all they have is some random data points. So if you're doing this for content marketing, you really need to start with a strategy. You need to understand two things, I think, really clearly. One is your outcome goals. What do you really want to achieve from this? Because that's going to drive your topic. So if PR is your biggest goal, if you really want media mentions of PR, you need to be thinking about what publications do we want to be in, what topics are of interest to them, what's being published in the press so that you are really picking a topic that's aligned that way and doing research that's going to be appealing to the press. If you want to do it for lead generation, and those are the two kind of big Typically, the two big outcomes, lead gen, you'd want to be thinking more about your end audience and what what topics are going to engage them. What do they care about? You can do you can kill two birds with one stone on that. But I think you want to know which one is your priority and kind of start there. And then you want to pick a topic that's going to engage on that. And you want to do make sure that you have a narrative around that topic. So you have some hypothesis that you think you should know your audience, at least that you have some idea of how you think they might respond. Or I said, if you have some myths where you feel like your experience has told you that even though everybody says X, you really think that Y is true. You know, (laughs) I think that makes for a really interesting, both for PR and lead gen can make for really interesting headline pull people in. So if you have something like that, like I had one client who they were pretty certain that people in their space thought that everybody was using SaaS tools, but they actually weren't using SaaS tools. And it turned out that less than 50% were using SaaS tools. And a lot of them actually were not even allowed to use SaaS tools for legal and compliance reasons. Um, Interesting. You know, so, so that's the first piece is you really want to have a strategy in place. And once you have that, then you need to develop your survey. And the survey is where I would say, if you don't know how to do this, I know this is actually what people think is the easy part, but it is the most critical piece. So if you don't have experience writing a survey, I highly recommend you get some help, at least with that piece. And you really want somebody who can think about it, both from the data collection quality um, piece to make sure that you're not asking leading questions, that your questions are clear, that you're using the right formats for the questions. But the second piece is also understanding how to write those questions from a content marketing perspective so that when you turn them around to make a headline, they make a headline and you've asked, used a format that's going to, you know, generate it. Like I see a lot of people using like on a scale of one to five or on a scale of one to 10 type questions. And that's, in my opinion, one of the worst types of questions you can ask because you're not collecting a lot of like insights. You're wasting kind of (laughs) the opportunity, but also 65% of people said four out of five is not a, is not an interesting headline. It's (laughs) maybe you put words in their mouth to say by four, they meant they've, are very likely to do this, but you're still interpreting that data rather than really knowing what they were thinking. So um, again, I would just, that's the second step is writing that survey, but make sure you get it right. And then you have, you need to program it. You need to get it to the audience. And that's a whole nother subject, how you get that audience. And then the last piece is analyzing that data afterwards and not just taking your survey results that you just got back from the 
20 questions you ask, but really, again, going to a, into data analysis and really looking at what I call cross-tabbing, where you're looking at like your demographics questions and you're trying to understand, did people in different industries respond differently to these questions? Did people of different roles respond differently? Because this is where what I call, this is where a lot of hidden stories actually lie and where you can do a lot more with your data when you look at different things, because that's where you might find really interesting, like executives think that everything is great, but people doing the work are miserable, or this industry has these challenges, but this industry has totally different challenges. That can be interesting both internally and for your external content that you're going to create. Yeah, there's definitely stories inside there. And so making sure that the, the questions are, are right or really set up to, to pull out those stories. That makes a lot of sense. What would be an example of a question you said that you ask a question and you turn it around and and that is your headline or that is one of the the discussion points? What do you have an example of what something like that might look like? Yeah. So you just want to be specific. Like I was just thinking about a question today where initially it was written, how efficient are you at X, Y, and Z? Asking how efficient somebody is also again, open to interpretation. Although it's like from a headline perspective, that could be 95% of people say they're not efficient at whatever task, right? That, that could be really surprising. Right. But want to be more clear for understanding instead of asking efficient which is open to their interpretation of what efficient means, you might want to ask like, how quickly can you get this task done? Does it take you a few minutes? Does it take you half the day? Does it take you a month to better really understand? And then from there, you can derive like efficient looks like this. Some people can get it done in five minutes or less. So if you're over here and it's taking you five days and you're then this bucket is very inefficient. So that would be a way where you can still come out with that headline around efficiency, but you actually have a clear idea um, of exactly what the what the challenge is, how long it's really taking people versus having some vague sense of what that might look like. And do you like surveys that have questions like that, that have, yeah, I know you said like a scale is not a, a great survey, but that have, you have a question and you have suggested answers that they're picking from, or is there yeah, a better way to do answers to, or make it freeform? No, you almost always want to do answers that they're picking from because people don't want to spend forever. It needs to be cognitively easy for them. So you do want to have a list of questions. And essentially, if you're asking somebody like very likely, somewhat likely, not likely at all, it is still a scale, but it's different than just a numbered scale because now you have words to explain it versus a number. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it does. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so and then how do you craft the answers so that you're not leading them with the answers or leading to what you well, want you, them to you say? Wanna, you need to know your audience a little bit so that you understand what those responses probably are going to be. And this is, again, where it can be valuable to do year over year research because you don't always know what every, everybody's challenges might be, but you have a good idea of what some of them. So you would first list the ones that you know are probably out there are challenges, but then I always, always, I do always have an other in that case where they can write in. So it's optional, but they could write in another challenge that wasn't on the list. So it gives them an opportunity to speak up and say, Hey, this wasn't my challenge. Mine is X, but it also makes it easy. If their challenge is on there, then they can just click it and keep moving. Um, And people will write in what if they feel strongly they have a challenge and it's not on the list, they'll write it in. And then if you see that response in the other bucket, 
a lot of times, then, oh, hey, next year, this should actually be on our list because clearly it more than one person said it. So. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and I like that, that they have to feel strongly enough that what you have there doesn't fit. And and I think that's a signal in itself is that, that they're actually taking the time to, to write that in or do something different. Yeah, and you can have open-ended questions. I just caution to not do one more than one or two in a survey because, again, um, a lot of people, one, they just don't want to put that much effort into it. They have to think about it. They want it to be easy. They want to just see the options and be like, yeah, this is me, this is me. But you can ask a question is, what are your feelings about AI or something? And you could leave it open-ended. But if you do too many of those people, that's just going to hurt your kind of completion rate. People are going to fall off. They're going to be like, man, they're just like asking me to work too hard. In fact, I was going to take a survey. It was actually about content marketing salaries. But every question was going to ask me like, what was your salary for the last 10 years? I was like, oh my gosh, I'd have to leave and go look that up. I'd have to, you know, like... Everything was asking me to work yeah. really hard. And then I just decided, oh, I'm not invested enough to finish this for these people. <laughs> yeah, not worthwhile. <laughs> and that's coming from somebody that likes surveys and, and does that kind of thing. You know, if, if you're even more casual about it, then, you know, that's going to, it's the level of effort is just way too much. Yeah. What about the sample size? How many people do we need to have a, you know, a survey that is statistically significant, that we're actually getting the pulse of the market and really understanding what the, the thought is out there about an issue? Yeah. So that one is always a tricky question because the answer is really, it depends. It depends. Good marketing kind answer. Of market perception of what is a valid, because some people will think, oh, you've got to have 5,000 responses or it's just not valid, but that's actually not true. Because one of the things is the harder or the fewer people there are in that sample altogether. There are only so many CIOs that work at enterprises of a thousand employees or more. And it is not nearly as big as everybody sure. who works in IT, right? And it's going to be a right. lot harder to even get those people to give you their time. I have seen actually like the Wall Street Journal publish content where they were like 80, it was like 80 CMOs or something. So it can even be under a hundred. And especially this is especially true with B2B versus consumer audiences. Consumer audiences, I think there is an expectation for 1,000, 5,000, depending on what they're doing, because you're just asking everybody, right? <laughs> or you're asking a very large yeah. sample size. But my general rule of thumb is for if you have a B2B audience, over 100 is typically acceptable for most reasons and most purposes. Sometimes you can go lower than that. Like I said, if you're really getting very exclusive about who you're trying to survey, and sometimes there might be a justification that you really need to go higher. Often, I think it depends a little bit more on what your goals are. Like if you want to be able to splice the data, like by industry or by geography, then you're just going to need more like 500 responses because you're going to need a certain amount in each bucket. So it really depends. Understanding what your goals are, again, with the outcome of the research, what you plan to do with it, how you plan to use it, and understanding your audience that you're going to survey are both important. Lots and lots of great content to share, and you know where that's happening, and that is at SAS Open. Come hang out with me and a thousand other SAS leaders in Austin, March 28th and 29th. Get an inside look at the future of software and spend time with the people who are making it happen. There will be five stages, valuable content delivered in short 20-minute segments, and each one is focused in a different role. We have SaaS founders, CMOs, heads of products, sales, engineering. 
But the best way to predict the future is to create it. So come do that with us, March 28th and 29th. I'll be speaking at a couple of sessions, five monsters SaaS founders must slay to create a scalable business. Plus, we're going to do a half-day growth intensive where we'll lay out the six core KPIs that world-class SaaS leaders use to run their enterprises. Incredibly powerful and beautifully simple. I love simplicity. And this is something that not a lot of people are talking about. So learn more at sasopen.com and use code CHAMPION2024 when you register. Save a couple hundred bucks on your ticket. So I hope to see you there. That is good. 25, 100, 200, 500. Those are all very doable numbers. When you talk about 5,000, that sounds enormous. So that's very much a relief in thinking about uh, how we can put this to work. Yeah. And it's also the other piece of this is if you don't have a large email list of your audience, then you do have to use a panel vendor to source that audience. And B2B audiences are also much more expensive <laughs> to survey than a consumer audience. Again, that's a relief on the budget that you only need 150 instead of a thousand because that would be really expensive. So I guess actually that's something I, I do want to like, we're on the topic of just audiences and sample sizes. I do hear sometimes Margaret say, oh yeah, I'm going to go run a uh, pollfish or survey monkey and, and survey these, my target audience. And I would say, if you are surveying a B2B professional audience, even if it's widespread, like just marketers or IT, those are consumer based panels. And the way they're getting to the B2B professional is like, they're just asking consumers, essentially, are you a consumer who actually happens to have a job in IT or happens to be a marketer? And hmm. one, I think you'll find that it might be really challenging to even get 150 to 200 responses through um, one of those. Secondly, they're just not vetted in the same way. So I would say that if you're going to go after B2B audience and you don't have an email list that you're using, that you really want to find a B2B audience panel vendor that specializes in the audience that you are trying to reach. And so what would an example of uh, an audience panel vendor be? How would we find one of those? Yeah, there, I mean, you can just Google. There's a, a bunch of them out of there. Qualtrics is one that everybody knows. They, you know, they probably are the largest okay. aggregate. They aggregate from all these other vendors. But the, the advantage is there also, you can say, like, you can be very specific. Like, I want 100. You can, if you want 500, I want 500. And I do want them to be IT professionals, but I actually want them to have this, like they have to be on the buying committee. They have to either have influence or decision-making power, and they have to be at a company that has at least 500 million in revenue or more. So you can set some parameters that narrow in so that you actually are surveying very specifically who you want to survey. And then they will essentially come back and say, yeah, we can meet that of 500 or that's not feasible. We can do 300 and they'll give you a cost and you can, you know, you go around on your budget and everything, but you're going to get a much more, I think, accurate, um, accurate audience, I guess is what I want to say. You're going to feel more confident that you are going to get the number of surveys responses that you need for your project. So that's going to complete. And the third piece is that these vendors, there is a lot of discussion out there about fraud and bots. And, but I've worked with a lot of these vendors and I really have seen, and I use open-ended questions and I ask technical questions in those as, as a validation check most of these panel vendors, they should be, you know, they are, um, have ways to verify the people who are, they say they are through their work emails, LinkedIn profiles. So if you are checking how the vendor is also verifying who their audience is, 
and going that route, so you should be able to get a quality audience that is who they say they are. Yeah, that's really good. What do you think about doing surveys at uh, events or trade shows? Is that a good idea? Not necessarily a good idea? Um, I think you can do that. It's, it's definitely not a bad idea. So again, w- what I would say is whether you're using your, if your email list isn't well segmented or you're doing it something like this and you're still just trying to target a very specific person, then you do need to have some kind of screener questions in there. And it can either be that you kick them out at the right at the beginning of the survey if they don't meet those, or you clean the data on the back if you don't want to be rude and kick somebody out. But you still need to, I have seen surveys where they really just don't ask those questions. And then you don't really know that you're actually getting responses from people that can truly answer questions you're asking. So I do think it's important to have at the start what are called screener or qualifier questions to make sure that you really, usually you'll need two or three of those to really say, this is the person that I wanted to talk to and they meet those qualifications. So is it good to, to kick them out of the process then, or do they just go into a different bucket? And, and maybe that's one of the things you look at and say, my target says this, but then we've got other people in here and maybe it it's, it's you know, different level. What you know. you're doing and why, because like one, if you're some way compensating them, if you're saying everybody who fills out the survey dollar ah, gift certificate. You may not yep. want to do that for somebody that's not even going to be a response that you're going to use. However, I have had like I right. had one client who wanted to survey all of their brokers, but they didn't have their email list wasn't very clean. And they decided that they didn't want to offend anybody that way. <laughs> and they still wanted to just say, look, they took the time, they took the survey, we're going to give them the $25 gift certificate for doing that. But on the back end, obviously, if they're not in a sales leading position, if they end up being in an admin position or something, we don't want their responses. We want to clean those out so we have a really clear view um, for the roles that we're really looking at. So we just did that on the back end. So everybody took the survey. Everybody got the, what do you call that, the promotion or whatever for taking it. But then we cleaned out the data and said, look, out of 700 that took it, about 100 didn't qualify and we've moved them out. And now we're looking, now here's the real data. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, being able to do that either way, at least it gives you options. And that completely makes sense, especially if there's some sort of a reward. You want to make sure that the ones that are getting through. Yeah, and like I said, it depends on what your relationship is. If you don't know them, then there's, I think there's no like harm, no foul, and like kicking them out. But if it's like (laughs) somebody that you're working with and you feel like they're going to be like, why did you email me in the first place? (laughs) Then you might want to think a little bit more through your process about when when you want to kick them out or not kick them out and how you want to clean your data. But again, all of that you should have decided right. up front. So. Yeah. Part of the strategy. I think that that's so key, you know, where you started, but it's really figuring out what is the reason we're doing this? What are we looking at? And having that, that strategy at the very beginning and uh, the, the unique yeah. angle. So it's not just. And that goes back to, you want to do some competitive analysis, just like you would on anything else. Like you want to look at what other research is already out there in your industry. Like I gave the Salesforce example before about the state of marketing, and there are probably another dozen state of marketing reports out there or more. So if you were like in the marketing space, you need to figure out what would still be interesting to my audience that isn't like as generic as state of marketing. Maybe you could have been, now it's also out there, but like maybe right when ChatGPT kind of came out last, I guess it's been a little over a year now. Like if you were the first one to do an AI in marketing report, then you would have, that would have been a unique angle when it was first coming out. Now it's been done 
punch, but right. uh, but you can't go narrow into something as a way to give you that angle that's different. Yeah, that's really smart. And in taking that angle that is different, not just copying somebody else or doing that because they had success, right. but really thinking about what is a unique angle. And I think that helps too, just in press releases and getting picked up by publications is you have something that's different. It goes you know, back to what you said at the beginning, originality, yeah. something that's different and original that they can't find 20 other places. Yeah. I like that you brought up AI. How do you think AI is changing uh, surveys? Is that something that you've seen work well for generating survey questions or ideas uh, or processing unstructured data? Yeah, I mean, I guess from my own perspective, I haven't really used it that much in that way. I, I use AI a lot for like generating things like headline ideas or brainstorming, or I use it more oh, yeah. on the it's content really and I haven't really used it so much on the survey development end. So there may be a way that I'm not using it. As far as in the data analysis, I have tried myself a few times in chat GPT and I know people are using it, but I guess I haven't got the prompts right because it thought forever that it said it couldn't do it. Then I asked exactly what it needed. Then I did it that way and it still couldn't do it. So I, but certainly I think part of this though is the tools that, that I do use. And this is true in everything, right? Like marketing tools, content development tools, they are using AI. It's embedded in there. And so it's getting faster, easier. We're able to do a lot of cool data visualizations much quicker, much easier. Uh, that kind of stuff is where for me, so it's not so much me using AI through chat GPT or some other kind of software like that. It's more that the tools that I use do are more sophisticated because they are using AI in them as well. I love that idea, using it for data visualization. Yeah, significant time saver. And you, you come up with things that are much more interesting ways of presenting the data uh, that you, you might not otherwise. Much more consumable. Yeah. What is a, a myth? You said busting myths is one of the, the great things. What is a myth around doing original content, original surveys, and content marketing that, that you could buy? I think one is that we don't have the budget. <laughs> To do it because yeah, you can do it where it costs, you go with a big consultancy and it's going to cost you hundred K or more. But like I said, however you want to look at this, there's quantitative research, which is essentially interviews. You can go out and do those on your own. Even the qualitative survey-based research, there are ways to just do it yourself. If you want, you can start really basic with Google forms or something. It's not really the process I would necessarily recommend, but if it's, I think, at least experimenting and seeing how your process goes and, and working on it, if you have no budget, if you're like, you just don't, but you want something original, then just figure out how to get started and experiment and get better. And there are a range of agencies and costs that are a lot less than 100K. I do some research that's under 10K with clients. It just depends what you need and what you're looking for. But I would just say everybody has budget in the sense of there are things you can do with no budget. <laughs> oh, that's great. You have another one? Uh, the other one is one that we, oh, I guess the other myth I, which I talked about is that anybody can just write up a survey and put it in the field. And I have just seen too often where companies come to me after they've done the survey, collected their data, and they're like, we can't make sense of this. We don't really, what's the story here? And I've had to say, there isn't really a story here. The survey was poorly written and you don't really have mm. interesting data. You don't have anything to say here. I just want to emphasize again, 
like the survey matters, make sure it's right. Because if it's not your whole investment <laughs> could be down the tubes. That's so important. So how do we know if we do get it right? Is there a, you know, a specific key or things that, that, that we should know in, in going in and, and creating the survey to know that we're heading down the right path? I think it's like what I discussed is don't write until you have a strategy and you know what you're, and obviously you don't know what the data is going to say. You have hypotheses, but you should have a narrative that you've built around what you think the data is going to say. So you at least have a, I craft a storyline for every survey I write in advance that may shift, but I at least know that there's the survey questions are going to answer this story. They're going to fill in the storyline. I know what the survey, each survey question, what type of headline they're going to X percent say that I write that out so that I can uh, see how that's going to translate into my narrative. And then the second piece is making sure that you have written survey questions that are clear, don't use jargon, aren't biased or leading, aren't too complicated for people to answer. Keep them clear and concise, both the question you're asking and the responses don't ask two questions in one question. So don't say, are you <laughs> doing this carefully and quickly? The, which one? I could be doing it carefully, but not quickly or vice versa. Oh, that's really make smart. Sure that that's one of those. And then again, thinking about the format that you're asking it in, when it makes sense to make it select all, select one. Like I said, maybe there are times to use rating scales, but I feel like almost never. So that would just be one of mine. And if you don't know for <laughs> sure, I mean, reach out, find somebody that can at least review it. And the other thing is you should always test your survey. Once once I program it, I actually have two or three. I have everybody that's on the project take it and test it. But I also ask some outside people to test it because then they might say, Hey, I didn't, none of these were like an answer I would respond to, but you didn't have an other option or a don't know option here. And like, you're like, Oh, light bulb, I need a, so it's really good to test it. And then also once you put it in the field around 10% of your responses, take a moment, either pause the survey. If you're like with a panel vendor, they'll usually just pause it for you. Or if you're doing email, just when you get about 10, 15% of your collections, you should look at the data that's coming in and be looking and saying like, does this all make sense? If we're seeing really surprising results somewhere, why is that? Is it just that we're surprised or is it that people aren't actually understanding the question? Is it not written correctly? And we need to, let's correct that right now before we get the rest of the data so that we're getting the right responses. Yeah. Much, much better to, to do that then instead of when you get it in, you've got these crazy outliers. and why? Yeah. And it could be that it just the question wasn't clear and it's a little tricky sometimes. It's half art and half science when you're writing a survey. So sometimes you do just need to like see, oh, it doesn't seem like people are actually reading this the right way. Like maybe we need to put in parentheses a little bit better description of what we mean by this term we're using or How do we prevent bias? So if we have a narrative and we think that it's going to go this way and we're writing the headlines and, and knowing how we're going to use it, is it that we're writing the headline and we're waiting for the result to plug into that? Yeah. Or exactly. are, are there yeah, ways that we can be. make sure that we're not putting bias um, into in, it? In terms of the questions, you don't, you wouldn't want to ask, trying to think of good, you wouldn't want to ask something that would then lead them to respond to the next question. That's also a leading question is where you, um, oh, yeah. this is really hard to do. Now, how do you struggle? You've set it up for them to be thinking like, this is really hard. Now answer this question. So we're going to lead them into selecting. You can't always, it's just like everything. We're humans. You can't eliminate every piece of bias, I think, from your own 
but I try as much as possible not to, to, to try to recognize where there could be bias. And like I said, part of that is being honest, whatever the data you get. Sometimes you get results that are, but you wanted everybody to say they were struggling with this pain point because your solution solves it. And so that would be great. But the reality is right. they say they're not struggling with it. So now what do you do with that? You have a couple of different options. You could just leave it out of your story and not report on that piece of data if it's just not going to, you know, be part of your narrative. But, but I often encourage you, like, report on it and talk about why. And there may still be a way that even though, like, I'm just doing one now where the the people responding were actually saying that the customer service was better than um, other industries. And that was not what we expected. We expected them to say that it was worse. And when we thought about it, I was I think that's because they're just so used to the status quo that they don't actually, and also they're doing this job day in, day out. So so if they have to, they already know what the help number is for their job that they're doing. But if they were to go out and need to return something at an e-commerce store, and now they're digging for the customer service number and they're waiting, that feels more painful to them because it's not their day-to-day process. So there was ways to think about why they responded to something um, and still have a narrative around it. Yeah, this was the data, but we think this is why this is happening. Yeah. What is the the biggest mistake? Assuming you know, you go out there and you do research and you come back and you've got that and you've got a story. What is the biggest mistake that the brands tend to make when it comes to using their survey results and, and getting it out there? Into yeah, the world? I think just not repurposing it to enough places and enough ways. Like I said, I did say you could do it on a very scale to budget if you want, but if you do invest a lot of money, you should get. <laughs> your money out worth out of it. So you should really be thinking sales enablement. There's just so many ways that you can use it. So don't just think externally, also think internally how you can be using that data. You know, share that data with your sales teams, share with your product teams. There's sometimes questions that you've asked that are of interest, you know, for creating the content externally also can help internally just with understanding audiences, understanding what people might need in the product because of where their challenges are. So just really be thoughtful about all of the different ways, both from a content marketing perspective, but also just from an organizational perspective of how that research could be passed around and used. Yeah, that's great. It's been very helpful and insightful. Where can people learn more about you and about Redpoint? Yeah, I am active on LinkedIn, so that's a great place to connect with me. And then my website is just redpointcontent.com. It's another great place. Fantastic. We'll make sure and link both of those in the show notes. Becky, really appreciate you being on the show today. It's a great conversation. Thanks, Thank you. Jeff. It was fun to be here. Thanks again, Becky, for coming on the show and sharing your experience and insights, or maybe I should say primary research. Yeah, as I said, Becky really changed the way I thought about research. I was looking at it as it was difficult, it was over my head, and we get it. What do we do with it? It's one of those things just in the realm of big companies. And, you know, that, as we say in the South, total hogwash. You know, we took Becky's advice and framework and started doing it. We launched our first couple of surveys and uh, outstanding. So big thank you to Becky, not only for being a guest, but for just changing the way that I think. You can learn more about Becky and Redpoint content at redpointcontent.com. And, of course, check her out on social as well. All links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. And you know what? I will even link our current SAS research project in the show notes too. So you can participate. Go in there and participate in the survey and we'll send you an invite and you can come look at the, the reveal and join us for the reveal of the results. 
Be the CEO who's always a step ahead. Subscribe for Cutting Edge Strategies and share this with your C-suite circle. Everyone who shares this week gets a research radar. It's a tool that scans the ether to gather the latest trends, stats, and data so your content is always on the cutting edge. Be the first to know, first to show. Join us next Tuesday for founder Derek Ray. He is a multi-time SaaS founder, CEO of Demand Inc. and Lasso AI, a next-generation data and lead analytics solution, which is fantastic. He's got some great stories as well. And then next week on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series, we have Dan Balkowski, founder and chief pricing officer of Product Tranquility. Dan will be giving us new ways to think about pricing and how to price your SaaS right. Spoiler alert, it's not by looking at competitor websites. Now, he has great insights. I can't wait for that episode. So I will see you next time. Until then, as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes. Let's go!